We are resuming our study of Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 7, and we welcome you to this study. It's a verse-by-verse study of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, I'm reading from verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In our program yesterday, we talked about Melchizedek, and we'll talk a little more about him later in this program. In verse 7, it talks about how Jesus cried out in loud cries and with tears. To whom? To the Father, of course. And we pointed out that in all probability this is a reference to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his crucifixion. The Greek word for cries is one that suggests an involuntary sound. It is the sound that is forced out of a person by the stress and agony of a tremendous tension. It is a cry that is wrung out of a person, being tortured. And Jesus was tortured? No, he was not being physically tortured, but mentally he was, because he was faced with the decision of taking all the horrible sins of the world upon him, the one who knew no sin. This was an experience that he could hardly tolerate. And it was that which forced him to cry out and to weep. How much Jesus was troubled by that prayer at Gethsemane is expressed by his words to his disciples when he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then later when he prayed to the Father, he said, My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus experienced the agony of tears, and as a man he learned from these experiences in reverence to the Father. It was all for me, on my behalf, that he experienced this suffering. And this was preparation for his priesthood, so that I could have confidence that he indeed understands my agonies. There are times when we are tempted when we don't think that Jesus Christ could possibly understand. But the Bible tells us he can understand it because he went through everything that we experience. Now it says here in the text that he was heard for his godly fear. And that's the word that means reverence. God heard his prayer. Yes, and God saved him from death? How? By the resurrection. Now, looking at the Greek text here, I see before the word death the preposition ek, ek, to us. And that preposition means out of. It means out of as the source. He did die. He was crucified. He was buried. That proved that he died. But God saved him from or out of death. And I think the translation should have been better. 
rather than from, which kind of misleads us, it ought to say, out of death. Yes, when he raised him from the dead, he saved him out of death. Now, in verse 8, it tells us that he learned obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did he need to learn obedience? Didn't he know good from evil? Could Jesus not choose right from wrong without suffering? Well, this context has nothing to do with right or wrong or good or evil. This obedience must be interpreted by the context of suffering. It is obedience in respect to the agony of being the suffering Savior of Scripture. He was obedient in respect to hearing what God wanted and responding to God's word. It's the obedience of faith, not obedience in doing what is right, as we generally use this expression. Now, the word here is the same word for obedience of faith found in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. The obedience of faith, and that refers to believing God. God wants people to believe him, and when you have, you can say that you have participated in the obedience of faith. This is the same word used in the Gospels when we read that Jesus said in the storm on a boat, Be still, and the waves and the wind obeyed his voice. Nature heard, and it obeyed. It has nothing to do here with keeping laws, rules, or performing rituals. Now, verse 9 tells us that he became perfect. And being made perfect, it says, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is a puzzling verse. It implies that Jesus was not perfect until he suffered. Now, what does the word perfect mean? It means complete. Wasn't Jesus complete before he suffered? Not in respect to what the Old Testament said the Savior must do. It called for a suffering Savior, one who would take all the sins of the world upon him, one who would be bruised for our iniquities. And in that respect, he was not complete because he had not yet done it. That's all that passage means. But then, after he had suffered, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Was it enough that he suffered? Is he the source of eternal salvation? Is he the only source? Or does one need to have religion or do things? Now, many people are confused about this, and there is great disagreement in religious circles about what it takes to get salvation. Well, salvation in the Bible consistently, in the Old and the New Testaments, all rests on God promising salvation to everyone who does nothing more than believe him. Now, there are people who look at verse 9 and they become very troubled and they say, but it says to all who obey him. What is there to obey? Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. 
Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. To obey Jesus is to believe him. It's been that way in the Old Testament and in the New. God's way of salvation is to those who have obedience of faith. And again, I refer you to Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and also Romans 26, near the end of the chapter. It talks about the obedience of faith. When the Jews wanted to know what they could do for God, in John chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus answered this, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. You see, that's the obedience. And eternal salvation is to all who have that faith obedience. Then verse 10 tells us that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is a reference again to Psalm 110. But that psalm speaks of a person who is a king and a priest. It is verse 4 where the Lord designates him a high priest. It reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But earlier it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing. On your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. So here it presents a ruler, a king. And David calls him his Lord. Obviously, then, this is David's sovereign. And this Lord was told in verse 2 to sit in the place of highest honor at the right hand of God himself. Now, if you have any doubts that this psalm refers to Jesus, dispel that doubt by what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22 when he talked to the Pharisees. Listen to it, beginning with verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put thy enemies under thy feet. And there he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus continues, If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now what's the point? David is referring to his son as his Lord. Now, no one calls his son his master or his lord in any sense. The son might call the father his lord or his master, but not vice versa. And what Jesus is pointing out, that the scriptures of the Jews talk about David's lord being his son, that is, a descendant of David, the Christ 
or the Messiah, is a descendant of David, a son of David, and yet that one is his Lord. Ah, Jesus caught them in their hypocrisy. They claimed that they were searching the scriptures and believing the prophets, but they didn't. Now, in Psalm 110, these first four verses, we have the future government of the earth established in this king-priest, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that kingdom over which Jesus is someday going to rule, and Psalm 110 tells us about it, both his rule and his priesthood. Now, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 6, speaks of a combining of these offices of king and priest in one person called the branch, and it can be none other than the Messiah. Here's what Zechariah writes. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. He is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. So here we see Zechariah is writing about a coming son of David who will also be a priest. In closing, we remind our listeners that all of these teachings on the book of Hebrews are available on cassette tapes for your purchase. Our free teaching tapes brochure will tell you how to order. Write to the Radio Bible Course. Ask for teaching tapes. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.